Hello, and welcome to Uplift, a podcast about the transformative power of design from architecture and design firm NBBJ. I'm your host, Dr. Hina Santry. Each week, we will chat with people from all over the healthcare continuum who have been deeply affected by the built environment. On today's episode, we'll be discussing the topic of behavioral healthcare. For generations, behavioral healthcare has lived in the shadows, where people were stigmatized for their illnesses rather than helped. But in recent years, there has been increasing acceptance that mental and physical problems deserve equitable treatment. Today, we will discuss how health systems are tackling the escalating need for behavioral health care and how design can impact the health and well-being of patients, families, and staff. I'm joined by Dr. Susan Swick, Executive Director at the Montage Health's Ohana Center, a facility for child and adolescent behavioral health care in Monterey, California, that emphasizes connection to nature and treatment not only through medicine, but through experiences. I'm also delighted to welcome Ed Cheshire, a facilities leader at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. He recently oversaw the development of the Big Lots Behavioral Health Pavilion, which offers patients choices on where to spend their time and the ability to customize their surroundings in a comforting, uplifting environment. Lastly, my NBBJ design colleague Daphne Corona is here as well. Let's dive in. Hi, Daphne. Hi, Ed. Hi, Susan. Thank you so much for joining me today. Good afternoon. Hi, Hina. Glad to be here. So, Susan, I'll start with you. You've had a remarkable career as a child and adolescent psychiatrist and a behavioral health leader. Can you tell us a little bit about your professional background and what brought you to Montage Health to be the executive director of the Ohana Center for Child and Adolescent Behavioral Health? Sure, I'd love to. I will preface it by saying that when I was in medical school, I actually also got my public health degree. I was always really interested in thinking about healthcare at a population level, and in particular about opportunities to prevent illness and improve health and well-being. I did adult psychiatry training, I did forensic training, and eventually child psychiatry training, and finished my training in Boston. I was always in urban settings doing my training. I began working when I finished my training in a parent guidance program at a cancer center and began to bring that perspective into my private practice and my work in a clinic there um, and eventually got asked to be the head of child psychiatry, a tiny division in that hospital and was so excited. We focused on schools to do prevention and parent support and education. Um, And we called that program the Resilience Project, raised money to run it, um, and it operated for about five years before uh, Montage Health found me. And Montage Health received a gift from a lifelong resident of the Monterey Peninsula of over $100 million to create a new program that would be a child, adolescent, and family mental health program. And in looking for someone to design and build that program, they found me. Ed, you're an architect. (laughs) Tell us what you do for the hospital system that you work for at Nationwide Children's Hospital. Yeah, so I'm an architect and have been at Nationwide Children's for 16 years. I've supported our behavioral health service line since 2010. Uh, We built our first inpatient beds in 2014, and then a year in, really got to evaluate how we did. And through that process, through issues our board was starting to see in the Columbus community, uh, such as a a growth in the number of uh, deaths by suicide across the teenage population, 
we really started to rethink how could we do behavioral health better and just so happy that the board embraced that there's a large facility component to that. And Daphne, um, you have been with NBBJ for a while, and I was hoping you could tell us about what you're doing and um, your experience designing behavioral health projects. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm really passionate about community connection in my work. I actually started out designing New York City K-12 public schools, which is interesting. And when I relocated to Los Angeles, I've primarily been focused on leading programming and design for healthcare buildings. I'm focused on connecting design back to a client's mission. Um, and in the last few years, I've almost exclusively been working on behavioral health design. We have here today a project from Columbus, Ohio, and one from Monterey, California, two places that are probably seemingly as different as you can imagine, but, but truly facing that crisis equally. What are the drivers of this crisis in child and adolescent behavioral health? Yeah, it's sort of the $60 million question. And I would say what's really compelling to me is there's been a distinct climb in the incidence of new psychiatric illness in children teenagers and young adults, and not in adults. It started over a decade ago. And we have fairly coarse measurements of the incidence of new illness in children and adolescents in this country because we don't have a coordinated national health service. But our measurements are not terrible. They've been pretty consistent for the last 40 years. And starting around 2011, the rates of depression and anxiety disorders in the youngest children and teenagers up to about 24 years old started climbing to the degree that we're now at about 50% higher incidence than we were 11 years ago. It's a really dramatic climb. It has not been paralleled in adults. There's a lot of different theories. One is about stigma, that stigma is diminishing. And I think that that's a small part of it. I think that people are more willing to talk about their symptoms and seek help. That's real, but it doesn't account for a 50% climb. There's some really provocative and I find compelling data emerging that one of the critical shifts that may be behind some of this increase in incidence is the emergence of high rates of ownership of cell phones and tablets in our youngest children and teenagers and young adults, and particularly social media. And it looks like all screen time is not alike, that time spent playing video games or watching movies is not associated with higher rates of illness, but time spent on social media is. But when kids are spending more and more of their time in these superficial interactions instead of out in the world, I won't say that it's all bad. There is actually some good that comes even from social media. And we learned that in the pandemic because kids were actually able to stay tethered to meaningful social connections, to school, to opportunities for exploration by having virtual experiences. The problem is when those experiences become so easy and so rewarding that kids aren't having actual physical experiences. It's such complex issues. All of you have alluded to the real epidemic of behavioral health problems. In particular, our uh, youth, children and adolescents. And it was already escalating. But then the social isolation and stressors of the pandemic, I think, really 
escalated what our children were experiencing and the mental health consequences of the you know, necessary aspects of lockdown. And so, Ed, when you first started working in behavioral health, what did you experience? And how is it different than what you are seeing today? Yeah, so we we built our unit in 2000, opened it in 2014. And what we found then is once you build it, people come. And we were overwhelmed in our emergency department with behavioral health patients. So started talking about, do we build more beds? And uh, what we quickly kind of discovered was I could build beds, but I'd never be able to staff them. And it really led Nationwide Children's to start talking about how do we do behavioral health different? How do we do it smarter? So our building is only part of the story. At the same time we were building the building, we were building a system of better care for, for our patients. That really meant that we started developing a much broader continuum of care, looking at how we can treat patients right where they are. So creating different levels of programming, different levels of outpatient clinics. So it takes us from a spot where we have two options for patients. We can send them to outpatient or we can send them to inpatient to a wide range of different levels. Part of that is really based on, too, then how do I keep patients out of the hospital, if at all possible? We have a really unique three-day length of stay program here our youth crisis stabilization unit that's doing amazing work. We opened up a partial hospitalization. We have many more uh, group therapy programs, a severe behavior program, and uh, those will grow over time. We've talked about the crisis, some of the drivers and the trends you're seeing when it comes to child and adolescent health. What makes you hopeful about the situation and the way we are addressing it? Uh, that's a great question. So one in five kids need behavioral health care, and perhaps only 50% of those were, were getting the care they needed. I really see in Columbus that there's a, a community conversation going on about it. There's a lot of prevention. There's much more interest today than there ever has been um, from the overtaxed primary care community the pediatricians who are stepping up as frontline providers to talk about behavioral health with their patients. And I, I see how the project we have built here is really starting to have an impact in the community. And it's just an honor to have worked on the project. And how about you, Susan? Tina, I have to say I'm so appreciative that you ask about hope in the subject of behavioral health, because it's often not anyone's first question. Um, but I think about hope all the time because my task at work every day is to inspire hope in parents, in patients, certainly in my staff, so that they feel like their hope battery is so charged up that it's very easy for them to, to share that with patients that they're seeing, whether it's in crisis in the emergency department in a new evaluation in our clinic. And the hope that I have about behavioral health is, is deep and real. And I would say the first, the first reason that I feel very hopeful is actually connected to the, the, the crisis in behavioral health care, which is any number that can go up. So the fact that the incidence of new psychiatric illness in youth has climbed over the last decade, that number we then know can also go down. 
you know, waiting around for someone to need you, I share, I, w- I would love to put myself out of business. And knowing that a number can climb means it can go down, that we can affect it environmentally. I know we can bend the curve and change the incidence rate of psychiatric illness in children. It, it currently is probably closer that to 30% from the 20 to 25% it used to be. I think that with effective prevention and early intervention, we could get that number down to about 5%. I think 5% would be the, the, the natural rate of sort of biologically emerging illnesses that then we could treat and manage. The other reason that I feel hopeful is because of the children and teenagers that I work with, because one, watching stigma melt sort of generationally is extremely inspiring. So to hear children when I go into a school talk comfortably about anxiety, normative anxiety, anxiety disorders, talk about it in themselves, talk about supporting a friend um, who may be struggling, the fluency in emotional states and cognitive states and in how we can build health and then maybe recognize problems early. It's just emerging. It's just emerging. They're doing it already. So we just get to show up and harness that. And they make me hopeful because treatments work. You know, most of our treatments, a few of our treatments are medication, but medication is almost always a tool um, to facilitate the learning that is really the core of most behavioral health treatments. And kids are amazing learners. Like learning is part of development and development is gravity. So if we just give them sort of get the obstacles out of their way, they get back on their best developmental trajectory and we treat illness and build health at the same time. I, I really do come out of my office uh, many days with a heavy load on my shoulders of thinking about what we have to build and how how big the demand is right now and how are we going to ensure access for the, the large number of kids, that big 30% that we're facing right now with a small treatment resource. But there's a real, there's a lot of hope in my heart at the same time that I, I know if we can build a smart treatment system and support the healthier development, that we're going to get there. I, I have no doubt it energizes me to to face the the crisis because I know we can address it and actually end up in a far better place than we were a decade ago. So, you know, what I'm hearing is that there's there's a continuum of manifestations of what children and adolescents are experiencing. And Daphne, you have experience designing public schools and now you have had experience designing a uh, child and adolescent behavioral health care. When you think about what Ed and Susan described, how have you been helping clients address that across the country in the projects that you've been working on, that there are different ways to approach treatment? Yeah. For our clients who are investing in new facilities, they want to destigmatize mental health treatment. They want to have inspirational properties that are accessible, that are non-threatening. The days of those institutional lockdown facilities are past. So they want it to be available to all populations, no matter the circumstances you're coming from. And I think, you know, they want to combine acute inpatient care models with those supportive outpatient care all in one facility, Ed mentioned, to support that continuum of care. They want to really build resiliency and disrupt the crisis cycle for these families. 
it's interesting because behavioral health is not a money-making operation, right? So it, we have to figure out how to help our clients best invest their dollars to make the most impact. And it's not just behavioral health facilities. I mean, there's not one way into the system. So for example, we're designing flex rooms and emergency departments to address those in, in crisis. And they often stay for multiple days. I mean, it's essentially a holding cell because there's nowhere else to be transferred to. So how do we bring natural light in? How do we give them access to green space in areas where traditionally you wouldn't have these in an emergency department? So it's a real challenge across the industry. Let's talk a little bit more about the buildings, though, right? So uh, it's obvious that both Montage Health and Nationwide Children's Hospital have a fierce commitment to improving access to behavioral health care and optimizing outcomes for children and adolescents. And these two buildings could not be any more different (laughs) in their actual architectural design. It's really an impressive difference for uh, a shared set of uh, values. And so... Daphne, you said earlier that, you know, this idea of uh, the stereotypical socially isolating, cold, sterile psychiatric wards is, is a thing of the past. But tell me a little bit about these specific projects. You know, they combat sterility and isolation in two very different ways from an architectural uh, perspective. I know you were more closely involved with the Ohana project. And so maybe, Daphne, you can talk about some of the highlights of the design features there. And we'll have Ed then talk a little bit about some of the design highlights at the Behavioral Health Pavilion. So Ohana has, you know, the luxury of of harnessing the natural beauty of its coastal canyon site in Monterey. The rings of the interconnected courtyards that we created, they really foster that exchange between people and nature. And It provides an unobtrusive natural barrier for safety and security, which is so important in these facilities. Access to greenery and movement um, improves executive function to support the control of behaviors to improve outcomes for these children. Now, as Ed was saying for Nationwide, you know, the site is very different. It's very urban, but we approach that design, you know, in some of the same ways as a non-traditional hospital approach um, that really evokes a residential character to it. So there's neighborhoods within the floors that balance the needs for, you know, solitude and security with the needs for interaction and autonomy. So it's supporting that social interaction with those neighborhood hearts, you know, those energy centers but also, you know, they, we provide adjacent comfort spaces, you know, for quiet respite that minimize the need for that typical isolation and seclusion that you would see in a, in a mental health facility. So we're going to have pictures on the website for people to look at uh, to see the differences in these buildings. But you talked about Ohana's interconnected courtyards. And so the building is not a square or a rectangle, or even a dome. Daphne, can you describe it maybe for us lay people in the audience? So uh, Ohana has a serpentine shape almost that curves around the natural terracing of the site. So it's built on a on a hill and it overlooks this beautiful valley. It's, it's the perfect site for architects for prospect and refuge. So, so we have as humans, we need to feel protected, but we want to look out at a beautiful vista. And so our goal with Ohana was always to touch the site very lightly. So we created, you know, low rise buildings that kind of, 
you know, move around the site um, in a very low-rise residential nature. It was all formed, you know, early with neuroscience principles um, that we learned from Dr. John Medina, who's a molecular biologist fellow here at MBBJ. And um, we wanted to connect all the occupants to green space. And the rule is you need to be able to visualize real green space within 50 feet at all points in this building. Along with the interior space, we have these beautiful walking paths on the site. We connect the indoor therapy areas to the outdoor therapy areas where, where Susan can conduct you know, yoga sessions or work on gardening with the children. So we're enhancing that executive function. We're reducing staff arousal fatigue, which is a huge problem for these facilities. You know, staff burnout is is high. So we have specific plants on site that activate those natural killer cells and, and boost your immune function, such as lavender and rosemary. And we have spaces for the children that foster personal agency. You know, they can they can grow fruit or, um, you know, they can participate in, in basketball and it creates a really normal environment that encourages them to have choice and take ownership over their day. So Columbus, and I love Columbus. Columbus is my home. We're very happy here as a family. We don't have mountains or oceans <laughs> or fruit trees. Um, uh, we, do, we can do apple picking in the fall. So there's that at least. So Ed... Can you tell us a little bit about how you're trying to bring in those elements in what is environmentally a very different place? It is a different place. So uh, (laughs) natural light was very important to us. And we've actually carved the building back on the upper floor so we get light deep into inpatient units. But we really focused a lot on on building community. And we had done an informal study uh, with some patients on our old unit and talked about why sometimes it was hard for a patient to want to leave the inpatient unit. And they talked about how for the first time on that unit, they had felt consistency, they had felt safety, they had felt community. Those kind of became three hinge points as we went through. And, you know, we worked hard to develop spaces that were warm and welcoming uh, we've used a lot of natural wood to to bring in just the warmth to the building, but really thought about um, how do we let kids be kids and uh, wanted to uh, really reinforce that your patient room was a spot that we called it the nest. We built a space where the, the child would feel most safe. Uh, we wanted to teach kids strategies that once they leave, they could continue. So how do you get, you know, teach nutrition and, and feed kids good meals? How do you reinforce exercise? And we've got an outdoor play deck and a gym on the top of the building. How do we um, create group rooms with a diversity in mind so that some kids may want a quieter space, some kids may want a louder space, and, and really learn how to embrace and feel like you're part of a, a neighborhood? Those were some of the things that, that went into our thinking. Right. I can say this because I've I wander the halls of uh, Nationwide Children's Hospital far too frequently, in particular with my teenage son, who's no stranger to many different departments at Nationwide. (laughs) It really feels on the inside very much like any of the other buildings. And um, I will say that there was definitely a strong positive choice in the uh, terrazzo that you perhaps played a role in choosing for the wayfinding. So you can get around a large building with, you know, something that is built into the floor, but it is like 
instantly uplifting to walk in and to see that color choice contrast with the, and it's like the smallest little thing, but I know it was intentional and it has the effect, right? Nobody wants to go to the hospital with their loved one, even someone like me who spends a lot of time in hospitals as part of her day job, right? And um, when you're walking through there, it's those, you know, little touches that make such a difference to that whole experience. And, you know, Daphne, from a design perspective, can you tell me about, you know, other sort of materials and choices? You alluded to what we know about neuroscience principles and using a design to uh, affect the cognitive response, the physiologic response to space. If you could tell us a little bit more about that. You know, Ed mentioned wood and the use of wood, and I'm obsessed with wood right now, <laughs> trying to experiment with it. I think at MBBJ, we're, we're trying to utilize it in new ways. And, you know, that driving connection to nature concept, you know, that we're utilizing for many of our projects in behavioral health, it propelled us to consider a mass timber structure um, for Ohana, and, and that's unique for a healthcare facility. But, you know, that warmth of that wood, it just provides a pure environment. So you require very little in terms of other finishes. You know, and of course, it doesn't have that natural um, embodied waste of traditional concrete and steel construction. So it's just, it's naturally healing for Ohana, our facade was developed with prefab and modularity at the forefront because we we need to be efficient with our costs as well. And everyone knows wood got very expensive during <laughs> the pandemic. But it helped us to reduce overall construction duration, you know, thinking about a modular facade and and reducing physical impact to the site. And it's great because the building and the site, it just celebrates nature for wellness. And it just, all we're doing is enhancing the natural beauty that's already there with the construction, which I think is is lovely. I think everyone has alluded to the financing components of this. I wanted to dive a little deeper into the financing. Um, Ed, the Behavioral Health Pavilion, has the label of a, a Columbus-based uh, consumer goods store, the Big Lots Behavioral Health Pavilion. Can you share a little bit about how that sponsorship came to be? So when we started contemplating a new building, we did not expect to have any donor funds going into it. We had built mock-up rooms as part of the design process and brought Big Lots in to see their, our, our mock-up rooms. That led to a discussion of, hey, I know five more people that should come and see this. We brought in five more people, then they brought in five more people, and it just kind of grew as a grassroots thing where not only did Big Lots really step up to the plate, but we had many more donors come and see the space, start talking about behavioral health and the needs, and then also step up. Susan, can you tell us a little bit about sort of the history around the financing of, of Ohana? Child psychiatry is such a money loser because of the way insurance um, reimburses for procedures over time-intensive specialties, that most community hospitals have closed their departments or divisions of child psych. And really, the only departments exist at big academic medical centers. And Montage Health received a gift from a lifelong resident of the Monterey Peninsula of over $100 million to create a new program that would be a child, adolescent, and family mental health program. The donor is a wonderful local resident who's very connected to the hospital and has, has lived here for 50 years. So the hospital generated four proposals. This was one of the reasons I was willing to move my family across the country, because rather than making proposals that would 
be money-making uh, operations they would be able to invest in. One of, one of them was uh, a youth mental health program, um, including a whole physical center for such a program. And she and her three daughters all unanimously chose that proposal of the four. And in the case of this donor, her only stipulation was that the program be called Ohana, which is Hawaiian for family, and that it live up to the spirit of the name. So what a single large gift created was the possibility that we could think really innovatively about how to both create a center of excellence where families worried about a child could turn for assessment and high-quality evidence-based treatment, but also to actually aim a little higher and think about what could we do to really move the needle for the whole community so that if families moved into our community, they would expect that they would raise healthier children, that there were resources in the community. Being able to invest in a physical building for doing this was a very intentional decision Half of the gift is being protected as an endowment, but the other half was really dedicated to to building a building that would not only be safe and um, regulatorily compliant space to deliver treatments, but would also become a, a kind of community center, a resource for every family in the community that might be interested, even excited to come to a workshop. Uh, so that every family in the community felt a sense of ownership um, about this building, even if they don't come uh, very often, that the building itself becomes an element of our prevention program, where it creates a sense of possibility, of hope, and uh, the ways in which mental health has to be built. Mental illness has to be treated, and it's curable, but mental health has to be built. And the building itself is a reminder, is a promise and it's also a, a, a facilitator of the of both prevention and treatment. So this has been a really a, a truly wonderful conversation. You know, as a trauma surgeon, when I looked at my own data, seventy percent of patients who I treated at one of my jobs had un or poorly treated mental illness, and many had been self medicating with alcohol and drugs. And it was through that that they became my patients. And I would like nothing more than to reduce 70% of my patient population through access to high-quality behavioral health care before traumatic injury occurs. Well, thank you, everyone, for being here today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Hina. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Uplift. Special thanks to our guests today, Ed Cheshire and Dr. Susan Swick. For more information about this project, visit our website at nbbj.com. If you liked what you heard, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and spread the word. We'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.